This is a Billionaires in Boxes production. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxers with me, your host, Phil Paluccia. I am joined today by Fabrizio Costa. Now, this is going to be an interesting conversation. How are you doing, sir? Uh, nice. Thank you for the invitation, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I mean, and look, for, for those people who are frantically going on LinkedIn to try and find your profile to uh, to, to connect and see what you're all about. Um, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. For a start, we're going to dive into the, the whole data science side of things, which as most of my listeners will know, I'm a big data nerd, so I love this kind of stuff. Um, but one quick glance down your uh, LinkedIn profile, my friend, shows Forbes, it shows Apple, it shows Harvard. So I can imagine that there's a lot of ears pricking up at this moment to uh, to hear your story. Yeah, well, I I've been to those places. I um I I'm from Brazil actually, um, South America, and uh, my dream was to do something related to science. Uh, mm-hmm. In the beginning, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut because the whole uh, space shuttle program in in the USA was happening. Uh, but then. I had a biology teacher in high school that got me interested in genetics. Mm-hmm. So then I did a bachelor's in, in science with a focus in, in biochemistry and, and a little bit of genetics at that time uh, in Sao Paulo, uh, in Brazil. I'm not from Sao Paulo. I'm from uh, the third biggest city there. But then uh, afterwards, I, I did a postdoctoral training at Harvard University. Yes. Uh, two years there, um, fascinating, but uh, lots of stories because everybody thinks, well, the, 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 the geniuses and the biggest minds are there, MIT, Harvard, uh, like Cambridge and Boston, in yes. Ma- Massachusetts, in the U.S., it, it's the place to be, but I can tell you that it is a very competitive place, a lot mm. of uh, foreigners and uh, it's a little bit uh, frustrating because um, a, the competition is not very, uh, how can I say, it's, it's a little toxic yeah, to, can, to, to tell you, but, but it's an, it was a nice experience. Uh, I had some publications with mm-hmm. people there. They, they are very bright, and uh, you can meet a lot of uh, very interesting people, Nobel Prizes, like around the corner or in, in the building uh, close to you, and you can go there and talk to those guys, So, which is interesting. Um, but you have the other side that is a lot of competition, like laboratories fighting, so you can talk to the people from the other lab and things like mm. that in academia, which is bad for science. And I think now with the COVID-19 uh, Everybody's trying to, instead of, even though there is a competition between the vaccines, uh, I think a lot of people uh, collaborated to, to get to the point that we are right now. So, And mm. then I, I became a serial entrepreneur because I got frustrated with academia. Yes, I co-founded like uh, two companies and founded two. Uh, one of those companies was a success. We raised money. We... We were accelerated, incubated. Well, I went to the White House uh, to, to when Obama was the president uh, to to the Congress in the U.S. to present the idea that we had, and then the company was sold. And then I got invited by Apple to 
to uh, be the head of one of their uh, international training programs that is very confidential. Mm-hmm. I can say that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say we'll we'll, we'll get on to that in a little while because we were talking about that um, in what I let's call the virtual green room beforehand. But I'm I'm curious because obviously there's a Brit looking at establishments in uh, particularly North America. There are certain names that stand out. Now that's not the first time I've heard that about Harvard. I have to be honest. Um, I'm curious as to, I mean, I know that you were there in different capacity, but I'm curious about how you would compare the experience of your time at Harvard with your time at Northwestern. Well, both are very competitive. Um, uh, one is in Chicago. Of course, I lived in Chicago for a while, but in Boston it's not just Harvard, it's MIT. You have mm-hmm. BU, you have a lot of, uh, very important and nice, uh, academic places, right? Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of things came out from MIT, uh, from Harvard University. Lot, lots of Nobel Prizes there in science and engineering. So because of that, a lot of people want to go there to do a PhD or to study uh, medicine or whatever, right? So to do a mm-hmm. college and then do law, a law, uh, like like for example, let me give you an example. Obama did law school there. So there's a lot of uh, big names uh, John Kennedy did. So uh, there's a lot of big names. And when you walk around in the, in the Cambridge uh, side, uh, like buildings in, in, in Boston, because they are, they are split, mm-hmm. or even in MIT in Cambridge, you see a lot of uh, big names in there. The problem is that all of the world want to be there. It's very competitive. And when you get a position, uh, there is a lot of... Um, pushing so you can uh, do a lot of things because they expect a lot from you. To mm-hmm. give you an example, uh, there were some people, I won't say that their, their nationalities that would uh, be uh, working like 20 hours a day, oh, even really? bringing something to sleep in the lab, which is outrageous for me. They didn't have a life, even mm-hmm. though they were married and had kids. So, Sometimes it's too much. So, um, but some people they can navigate in those things. Uh, I stayed there for two years. Uh, the experience was good. But if you ask me um, about Harvard specifically compared mm. to Northwestern, is this brand name that they have, and everybody is very uh, curious, or even. Uh, it's it's a name that is if it's in your CV it opens a lot of doors. Northwestern University, which is in Evanston, in Illinois, and in Chicago, the medical school is in the center of Chicago in in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was more in the medical school. Um, you see a lot of very bright people, but it's a little less competitive. It's uh, even though in academic in academia in general you see a lot of competition between labs, um, I was just reading a book uh, that uh, Bill Gates uh, suggested. It's yes. about the cystic fibrosis gene discovery and how they are treating the patients right now. Mm-hmm. And Francis Collins, that is the director of NIH right now, under Obama and Trump administration. I don't know in the next uh, administration if he is going to be. He's the guy that discovered the CFTR gene that is the mutations in this gene cause uh, cystic fibrosis. So you can see during the the, the book that there is a lot of competition between 
teams to get to the gene that is the that is mutations are causing the the, the genetic disease. So it's all about that. It's all about competition. Mm. Who gets there first? But in my perspective, if science science was more a collaboration, yes, uh, it would be better for society in general. But it's not like this. Well, I was going to say, uh, well, I was actually literally just thinking that question as you were talking. Is it better? Because what you've got is, is the competition driving people on to achieve quicker and better results? Or would collaboration do that far more superiorly? You know what I mean? Would it be better for these people to link up and have the conversations directly, share research, go into joint ventures together to for the good of mankind? Or is that not something that is on the cards for the science community? No, in my perspective... Well, that's that's me, okay. So other people had they have other opinions, but uh, science and competition go uh, side by side. So so they go mm. hand to hand. Uh, because let me give you an example: to get a tenure position in a nice university, uh, they say Ivy League in the U.S. or even in Europe, a uh, nice mm. uh, place, uh, the the King's College or Anywhere mm-hmm. in the UK, for example, that is uh, top-notch in, in terms of research, you have to have nice publications bringing research money somehow from the Wellcome Trust in the UK, NIH, mm-hmm. or NSF in, in the US. So if you don't bring those things, you are out. So mm-hmm. that's why there are a lot of postdoctoral uh, people that change careers or go to industry or they do something else, they do an MBA and go co-found a company. That's why entrepreneurship is increasing because there's a a bunch of people coming out of those places with no jobs. So Mm. because they are not selected, I would say less than 1% get tenure in those places or even in, uh, um, other universities in the US or in the UK or even in, in Europe in general mm. uh, because it's very competitive. It's a lot of people for a small number of positions. Mm, for sure. I can understand that. Yeah, well, um, there are there were people like that. So I went to uh, one of a few scholarships to go to a, a handful of relatively prestigious places along the uh, throughout the years. And one of the things that I always noticed was just how competitive that was. Um, you know, I would, uh, I remember on one occasion I turned up and I won't say what it was for because it's not relevant to the conversation, but I turned up and I, I had to turn up in my cadet gear. So I had to turn up in, in sort of military style uniform, best blues. There were lots of us there. Uh, and the reason that we did that was that there was a member of the royal family who was also in attendance that day. And I went through this whole great big sort of day where I had to do panel style interviews in front of six or seven people. There, there seems to be so many other applicants around. And then as I was on my way out, I did what I usually do and get chatting to somebody. And he said, yeah, it's going to be a busy few days. This is day two of three days of applicants. And I was like, I thought this was just I thought this was it. I thought there was enough of us here. Yeah. But there was another kind of two days either side of it. So I, I can fully relate to what you're talking no, about. And another thing, Phil, that I think it's uh, not human. I think it's very bad. And I, I, I do a lot of, uh, uh, like, I, I write a, a, a blog and I do a lot of conversations about those things because I think it's it's bad for, for the people that are there. You, you see, well, it's not 
bad to say that, but you see a lot of suicides and people getting depressed oh, in those places, do. right? Yeah. Uh, why is that? Because, uh, first of all, if you are a foreigner like me and a lot of people that are doing a postdoctoral training or a PhD in those institutions, mm -hmm. um, the PIs, the principal investigators of the labs or the professors, they treat you like, like slaves. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry to say that. <laughs> it's not yeah, right. yeah. Um, and uh, it's always this thing that they use against you. Oh, you are an immigrant. You are under a uh, visa, whatever, to work oh, here. Really? I can send you back. So you, you have those things happening most of the time. And I think uh, it's not nice. Uh, one example. The, yes. sa the same lab, uh, the PI, sometimes the uh, big shot guys, they give the same project to two, two people. They don't know that they have the same project or mm -hmm. scientific uh, uh, project. They try to do their best. The one that comes first gets the paper or the, the first authorship. The one that can, comes in second is out. So I, mm -hmm. I saw that a lot at, at Boston, in Harvard uh, uh, in Boston at Harvard. So I don't mm -hmm. think that's very uh, human to do. I, I think no, it's I very, agree. yeah, the, this type of competition I'm, I'm against. So well, it, can it I, has can to I be, ask, yeah. Can I ask then, do you, I mean, I, it sounds like a harsh environment anyway, but are you saying that you felt as a, as a foreign national, as somebody who was there as an international academic, did you feel more under the pressure than the, than the, the, the nationals that were in attendance? Well, the nationals, you both the, nationals, the nationals don't do postdoc. They are already a PI or they go to industry. Okay. Like I would say 80 plus percent are foreign, foreigners doing postdoctoral training in the U.S. That's why now they have a problem because they have all of those Chinese, Indians, Europeans that come, learn a lot of stuff and come back to their country. Yes. And uh, what they, they called brain uh, drain. Mm. So I was drained from Brazil to the U.S., but I stayed. I tried to find my way. Some people mm. go back to their countries and start their own lab, and then there is a competition. I think that's why the U.S., and because of the other po po uh, polit politics involved, mm. are losing their place uh, in innovation and technology uh in science uh especially specifically in biological sciences because mm -hmm. if you if you check now um engineering you have spacex you have lots of companies uh trying to move forward with the the going to the moon again or even to mars with guys like elon musk and yeah, but but those are private companies that are getting uh, uh government money to do those things so that's why I think uh, the U.S. is losing a lot of uh, space, uh, I would say, uh, in innovation, right? He's also not um, American, is he? He's South African, Elon Musk. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, but, well, look, I, I, that also doesn't surprise me, actually, because I guess, you know, one of the conversations that I've been having a lot recently, more from a, an economic standpoint, I, I suppose, is that, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And actually in the West, so in North America and in Europe, we've kind of become, well, as a society, we've almost become a little bit lazy, haven't we? You know, everything is at the click of a button. If we order something on our phone and it's not here in an hour, we've got a problem. 
Um, whereas there are still places across South America, across Africa, across you know the 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 Asian continent that actually have very highly intelligent and well-educated people from these establishments that can now come back and have the power to start to create a lot of the uh, correct a lot of the things that are going wrong in those environments. Yeah, what you said is very interesting. If you see the the stat, stats on the metrics on how many uh, founders or guys that are in top positions, even in the academic centers in the U.S., mm-hmm. more than fifty percent are foreigners, or they were born uh, in another country and came with their family from mm-hmm. Russia, from India, several Europeans. South Af- Af- Africans and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, now with this new um, uh, president there, I think Im- immigrants um, are going to get a better, uh, I- I'm hopeful, a better uh, treatment than, than before. Anyway, yeah. the other thing that is interesting when I was in the Apple International Training Program is the diversity, right? So mm-hmm. the thing that they would ask us uh, on the selection process for the students, uh, at least 30% women and uh, 20% diverse came in, coming from poor regions, not having like uh, a good education, but who were very smart. Yes. So those guys or girls, they, they are left behind because they don't have the opportunity mm. most of the time. I mean, there's a huge difference, isn't there, between knowledge and intelligence? Yes. Um, and yeah, and, and I like that because actually a lot of the times there are people who, from those environments who just haven't had access to the same level of education, but actually yeah. they're very bright and, um, you know, they they are destined for, for wonderful things if, if taken into the right program. Look, that's a great time to segue onto that, actually, because, you know, I, it's a fascinating story. How do you go from wanting to be, a, you know, a, a wannabe astronaut? To, uh, to to Apple's Academy and, and doing that work. I know there's only certain things that you can and can't say. Well, but... the, the astronaut thing is in standby. Who knows? I can get a, <laughs> Maybe. a seat on SpaceX. Uh, let's, yeah. Let me talk to Elon Musk. About Elon, that. if you're listening, my friend. Yeah, gotta, uh, uh, or I have to pay <laughs> half, half a million dollars with the new spaceship that they are testing, probably in 2024. They, they will be ready. Anyway, um, yeah, um, there were, I changed a lot. I wear, I wear the, a lot of hats, but I think in the end, you learn on the go. And nowadays, it's interesting because when you talk to like big corporations like either tech or life sciences, I don't, I don't, uh, they have boxes, right, for positions. I don't fit in any of those boxes because yeah. I have several things that I went through that, um, Data science is one of them. So um, I started, I, I did the, the, the postdoctoral training, frustrated with science in general, uh, because to get something from the bench to the bad side, when you are working in life sciences or biotechnology, it's very, uh, it takes years. So I, I, I'm, I'm impatient. So I went and started companies. One of them was successful. We did a healthcare IT company to accelerate the discovery of uh, patients with rare genetic disease like cystic fibrosis, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had clients, uh, big pharma clients, and then we were accelerated by a, a nice group from New York, uh, which is called Startup Health Academy, that opened a lot of doors for investors. 
We got, we raised money. Uh, and in the end, after six years, I was the CEO. And then I became the chief scientific officer in the, in the end. Uh, and presenting to uh, investor relations uh, meetings in mm. San Francisco, in New York. I went to Google at New York. I went to the WWDC once, and then some people from Apple saw me and came to talk because they were starting this Apple Developers International Training Program. They had a long name. Now it's called Apple Academy or Apple Labs. Yeah. Uh, all over the world, and they needed somebody that spoke Portuguese because they were opening 10 sites in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't mean that I had to move back. It, it meant that I needed to fly at least twice a month and mm-hmm. do a lot of remote work. In the beginning, I had to stay for a month to select the heads of the 10 sites, see the buildings, uh, get the the imports of the, the, the equipments and things like mm-hmm. that. But after I selected uh, all of the logistics uh, started we went on almost five years doing that. And then in the end of last year, I left to do my my uh, sabbatical and try to do my own consultancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was good because I didn't know that the pandemic would come. Yeah. Um, and then this year was a little slow in all of the things that I tried to do anyway. I think for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of obstacles in the way for this for this year for sure so look in terms of your your time at apple then and obviously with the centers that were being set up across brazil um i mean more just a, a little bit on the personal aspect of first i mean how did you feel at that point i mean you strike me as the kind of person that would take a tremendous amount of pride from that you know having left brazil to go to america to study to now be able to bring back almost job creation with one of the biggest and most innovative companies in the world to to your home country how, how was that feeling being the person bringing that home i felt uh, nice about that but i i thought that was a, a big responsibility because they wanted they had a lot of uh confidentiality stuff that i couldn't talk even to my now ex-wife mm-hmm. and um there is a there was a lot of things that i i since i was in the capital of brazil in brasilia having the the the, the, the team there mm-hmm. i was dealing a lot of the, with the government in a very complicated polit po, uh, uh, the the politics in brazil was in a bad uh i would say uh timing mm-hmm. because uh the, the uh, Right after we started, one year after the president was impeached and then the vice president got in and then the election came and we were doing a lot of things. Uh, I can tell you one of the things that I'm proud uh, for doing, but that I won't say names, but the the, the government that came afterwards, they killed the project, was uh, an app because in Brazil we have a socialized uh, medical system so everybody that is born is allowed to go to a medical facility, a public one that the government, the federal government, uh, pours money everywhere in Brazil, right? Yeah, yeah. So they have a database about everybody with an ID, all of the medical doctors, healthcare practitioners, nurses mm-hmm. that are working in those places, the salaries, the money that they are locating to each uh, location, city or state, whatever. So a big mm-hmm. database. So one of the groups that I was uh, heading in the in the program uh, was uh, there were five very smart guys, one girl and a designer because we needed a designer to do the app logo. 
So we did something called Brazilian Health Map in English. So we got access through the government to the database, which is called Unique System of Health or wow. uh, USU. That must be a lot of data. And a lot of data, 200-something <laughs> million uh, people with medical records, a, a very, very, uh, I would say, uh, touchy uh, information that could, uh, private information. Mm. So we were very, uh, 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 very careful with this information. And we developed a geolocation system with ma mapping all of the public places, either hostels or places that you could go uh, that were free for the population, right? Mm -hmm. So just to give an idea, the, one of the objectives of this program that Apple had was to grow the iOS developers community, to go, grow the market share of Apple in Brazil because they are way behind Android. They are like 20% okay. because the devices are very expensive there. Sure. So, and developing more apps for the smartphones from Apple or the tablet tablets, more people would buy it or try to buy it, right? Mm -hmm. So the guys did a very nice job. We did, did a geolocation. We did a pilot study in Brazil, the capital of Brazil, which has half a million people. And the idea was like this. Somebody is walking in the street and somebody has a heart attack, a, prop, a health problem. So this was back in 2015 when I started, 2016. So the first pe person that gets this this uh, this other person that is having a, a health problem with the app would find uh, the the closest public place that with a cardiologist or whatever That's that clever. he or he could go and the geolocation with the app would uh, bring the person there. Nothing fancy, very easy, but that the data was absurd, like a lot of data. So mm. um, we did this in a way that was citizen-centric. So the people that were using and downloaded, and I have to, uh, I have to uh, thank the government of Brazil because they did a lot of uh, advertising for free so people would uh, download the apps just in the Apple devices. Yes. So smartphones mostly. So the people would uh, find the public place go to the doctor or nurse or whatever and send the feedback with like faces, like uh, emojis or stars yeah. or even writing with an uh, X amount of car characters like Twitter has. Yes. Um, so grabbing all of this information after we did the pilot, we expanded to the whole country. And after two years getting feedbacks, we, we got... Uh, a very interesting uh, 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 conclusion. So a lot of people sent uh, feedback saying, well, I went to this place that the geolocation in the map is saying it doesn't exist or oh. it's not there anymore or it's not a hostel anymore, it's something else. Or I went to this public place, the Dr. X died, is deceased already. Oh, so wow. a lot of information that was wrong that was the idea to try to make the system work better. But yes. on top of that, mapping all of those things that were disappearing or ghosts, like, like infrastructure that were, were not there, people that were deceased or left or whatever, yes. we, 
we got you a big number of money that was disappearing somehow. I was going to say, what what happens with the if if Nobody you know that these institutes are being funded and there's no institute there, then where's the money the, going? The money was disappearing somehow in the billions of reais. If you cal- we calculated that, and I presented this to the Ministry of uh, Finance and Health in the capital of Brazil. Uh, when the transition was happening, a lot of confusion. But the objective of building the app, getting the data and getting the feedback was a success, right? Yeah, of course. So after we presented this to the government, one week after they said, oh, very nice. Uh, They cut the link to the database and the app died. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a successful story. But I had to come to the guys and say, well, the developers and the designer, well, you guys did an awesome job, but because of some politics, the thing is going to well, die. Actually, it was almost that they did too good a job, isn't it? They did such a good job, they managed to uncover something in the data that they, they really didn't want uncovered. And, uh, Phil, to, to tell you the truth, um, I got some... Some I, I got a little scared because I got some messages from people from the government telling me to stay quiet, you know. Oh, okay. So um, I'm I'm telling this story now because I don't care anymore. But that was <laughs> a little tough. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I can't imagine that getting threatening messages off the government feels particularly nice. And no disrespect either, but particularly a South American government because they uh, they are known for coming after you. Yeah, yeah. I won't name names here, but the the idea in the beginning was to, like you just said, to mm. make the system better and to try to find problems that were happening, even in with the money uh, going to the wrong places. But they mm. didn't want to, to me or us uh, to find those things. They wanted just to map specific things and try to make the system better. And then the government changed and the, the, the objectives changed. So we had to... But we did a lot of nice things. Uh, apps mm-hmm. like games that were uh, focused in autistic kids, Down syndrome kids, uh, people with disabilities, uh, logistics things for uh, like uh, delivery of uh, food for places that... Uh, the, the trucks couldn't go and how to how to um, the lo- do geolocation of places that uh, needed more uh, of specific things and things like that. We did a lot of uh, interesting things. More than, uh-huh. than 300 apps were developed in four years, I would say. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you found yourself in a bit of a confidential slash top secret environment all the way around then because not only were you having discussions with the government but as we were saying earlier it's not like these apple labs weren't exactly confidential either i mean you're you're not allowed to take pictures you're not allowed to kind of share what goes on in there it's a it's very protected isn't it by by apple i'll say the secret uh level uh in terms of zero to ten would be seven ish if you're talking cia pentagon in the u.s is like a it's, it's something they 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 even had some military stuff involved with the Brazilian uh, military and the the US uh, CIA and things like that. So wow. with data, yeah. I, I suggest that you don't share those. I mean, getting no, no, getting no. getting a warning about the health system is one thing, but don't go messing with the military. Yeah, well, uh, somebody's listening to this conversation now, for sure. The NSA. 
Uh, the, NS, the NSA and, ho- and hopefully Elon, so you can get that trip to Mars pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I, I like him. He, he's nice. Well, and um, yeah, but, but the experience was nice. Um, I, I, I learned a lot about those things because I, I'm not a, a political person, but I had to learn on the go to be stepping on eggs sometimes and then to to back off or to go forward and things like that. That's how I, I learned a lot of leadership uh, things and uh, how to be a leader, leadership styles, how Apple um, has a very nice structure uh, using cells in uh, something called challenge-based learning or problem-based learning, mm-hmm. which they identify a problem and they build the solution uh, around that problem to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. With the solution, I'm talking, it's an app to, to, to help in that specific problem. So we did a lot of interesting things. Some things they kept going, they, they are in the app store. Some things were killed, like I, I just gave you an example, but that's how it goes, right? Mm, for sure. I mean, look, you were saying sort of 300 plus apps created in that four-year period. How many, are you allowed to say how many people were recruited across the region during that period? How many people were Yeah, trained? we had a, a very tough selection process uh, that uh, each year 100 people would be selected mm-hmm. and those 100 would uh, uh, form groups of uh, up to five people mm-hmm. and get a problem to, to, to develop an app. So I would say... 20 groups each year of 100 people times four, almost 500 people went. Some guys were so good that they stayed two years there. They, yeah. could, they could renew their scholarship. They, they would get money for that. Yes. Uh, they would stay 20 hours a day because they were doing or uh, undergrad or graduate, uh, a PhD or a master's or whatever. So, And we are not talking just about software engineers or web developers or even app developers. We're talking about medical students that wanted to know how to code in iOS because they know that the future of medicine is uh, data science or mobile devices, how to deal with technology. So some of those students that were doing undergrad uh, programs that have nothing to do with technology, they wanted to learn technology. So, mm. Well, I think... I think that's probably important for a lot of industries, actually, not just the medical industry. It's, you know, I uh, I was having a conversation not so long ago with um, a lawyer and he he's a very old school lawyer. <laughs> you know, his, his firm's been around for a long time. Uh, he's about the third partner that's in succession that's taken over the business. But he, he and I were having this very conversation about how there needs to be more and more access for people to have legal services on the go, how they need to be able to understand their legal rights on the move in app form and how, you know, we, I mean, for example, we got onto the conversation of um, the, the things that were happening in America with Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff. And he was talking about, you know, people knowing what their rights are, because you often have people say, I know my rights, but do you know your rights? If they were in your hand on a, an app and you could search for things, it's, it's like, like the the free will or the Fifth Amendment that they have, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, the the free uh, the liberty to go uh, to to do whatever you want, but but you have limits to that, of right? Of course. Yeah. 
yeah. Yeah, it's it's the ability to do whatever you want, provided what you With want. With limits, yeah. Fits yeah. Our rules. yeah. Yeah. Don't don't step on anybody's shoes that is bigger than yours because you can get in trouble. Something like that. You can do whatever you want to do, provided it's something that I want you to do. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You see now. <laughs> I won't name the social media company, but they would get in trouble uh, because the, the government in the U.S., like the, the, the congressmen and the senators didn't understand anything about technology. Now they are understanding because it's affecting politics. Yes. So now they want to know why this big corporation is like doing whatever uh, affecting the results of elections or mm. anything related to politics. So now um, I think things are going to be a little uh, shaky there. You know? well, what I thought was interesting, I mean, I think a lot of people would have twigged what we're talking about there. I won't name them either because they'll, they got a lot bigger legal team than I have. So I don't fancy that lawsuit, but I think that's the problem, isn't it? That the governments worldwide you know, we're all just so excited by the immense power of social media and the reach of the internet and the usage of data that it, it's only once it's now being started to be turned against the population and politics and, and turned to, you know, put tailored opinions and tailored, you know, political adverts in front of people to try and sway their decisions that governments yeah. and senates have now started to say, oh, hang on, this thing might actually need a bit of regulation here. You know, they, they seem to just be doing their own thing. But, you know, most of these organizations. But I, I think the population in general, not just the politics people, they got really scared mm. this year with the fake news about the virus. Yes. So a lot of news that didn't like uh, have any any sense, and people like reading something from uh, news uh, uh, media that was saying X and the other one saying Y and you have to do this. And even doctors were confused. So mm -hmm. treating patients, there was no like protocol to treat in the beginning. So I think uh, that sh uh, was a, was a shock to everybody because I was with my family. Everybody's is coming to me and asking Fabricio, is this correct? Is this uh, fake news? So to make sure the news is fake or not, you have to go to, several news media and mm. see if they are aligning if everything is saying is saying the same thing like i would say uh, newspapers in the us in in europe or even in other places uh that are reliable if they mm. are saying the same thing i would say yes that's probably correct but if people doesn't read or know english as a bilingual uh, or they just speak Portuguese, or they, they just speak their language, they won't understand what's going on. Because the media was like, uh, the media in Brazil is always following the U.S., so whatever they, they see in the newspapers there, they translate, and and sometimes the translation is not 100%. So I would be the person to go in my families when something was like, oh, is this right? Can I take... A, hydrochlorine or whatever, if I get this virus, can I go outside without a mask? So now everybody's figuring out that the thing is real and mm. some things were fake, some things were like fabricated and some things are, uh, well, until, uh, until uh, the middle of the year, some people didn't, didn't even believe that the virus was real. That existed, that I know. Fake. Well, 
I was seeing the same thing. So I, as you know, I fell ill earlier in the year. So I, I caught COVID in, in May, June time, end of May, beginning of June. And I've been suffering with, with long COVID symptoms since, you know, I'm, I'm on the men now. Um, thank God. It's oh, been sorry about that, six yeah. months or so, but you know, it's, I was, I was experiencing the same thing. So I was going onto my Facebook, for example, and seeing people sharing articles about how this thing doesn't even exist. And I'm thinking, I'm feeling the worst with my health that I've ever felt in my entire life. And you're saying it doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, it, I think I think that it, what COVID has done, and going a little bit political here, but what COVID has done is it's highlighted the mistrust between a lot of the population and governments and mainstream media. I think it's almost a, if it appears in the Times or, you know, do you know what I mean? Or it appears in the Guardian or it appears on the BBC or the CBC up, up north and all that kind of stuff. I think people look at it and genuinely think, yeah, I don't believe it. I'm yeah, going to go NBC, and look at the news. ABC, exactly. all yeah, of those. It's, it's, Fox, it's NBC, yeah. it's CNN. It's you, they say something and you instantly go, I don't believe them. So that you then you go to social media. But the problem, again, because social media, it, it's the same thing, isn't it? Because they're not regulated in what they can do with your data, it's not really regulated in what can be posted either and passed off as credit. So somebody can buy an ad for a million dollars and place whatever they want because they are paying for that. So Exactly. And, and um, that's scary, that's isn't it? Happens. That, then that looks like it has a lot of credibility. It's put in front of people, and it appears to a lot of people because they buy. I already did advertising on those social medias for the mm. companies that I was in, and the way it works is like how many people you want to reach, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have a profile of the people, age range, mm -hmm. uh, height, a female or male. Uh, blah blah blah, geolocation, blah blah blah, and then you pay X, and they show. To, well, probably they they show to that range that you did mm. in the scope of the advertising. But the big corporations, I think, they pay millions of dollars, and they say exactly the profile that they want to reach. But uh, I'm not cutting you off. But I think the COVID nineteen pandemic this year. Uh, one thing that is good about that in terms of uh, talking about an academic and a scientist, because mm. I knew what I was reading and I knew the scientific papers that were coming out of the clinical trials of the vaccines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the symptoms, signs and symptoms that people were ex experiencing and things like that. So I was able to uh, figure out like uh, what's uh, right and wrong, what's what people are like believing or not so i think uh, I, I i i'm i'm quite sure it's gonna happen and i hope it happens people would take more um like uh will give more credibility to your scientists yes. and people that do so not just healthcare practitioners because they are in the front line and they they are following protocols they are like i'm not saying they are technicians but they have to decide whatever, how they are treating the person, but who is developing a drug yeah, or testing absolutely. a vaccine or trying to develop a technology in the labs, those are the people, the scientists, that never appear. And the no. science, the technical science and, and the papers and the articles are very technical. Nobody reads those things except mm. for the scientists. So I think people in general now especially the smart ones, I, I'm, I, I'm hopeful, will give more credibility to scientists. because oh, I, th I think they must because yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I think back throughout the last 
20, 25 years, as far back as I can remember now. Um, I mean, I wasn't looking at it when I was a child, obviously. But I, I can't think of who designs vaccines. I, can't, I don't think I've ever known this. You know, when you go for your flu vaccine or yellow fever or whatever it is that you're getting. Polio, you, polio. Polio, yeah. You, you never know, you know, the, the one for tuberculosis, whatever that's called. You never, the BCG, that's the one. The BCG, yes, three they, in one, yeah. You don't know who designed that. That's never been a thing before. Like the public Yeah, kind of yeah, I know uh, polio was John Salk. That is the Salk Institute for uh, Research in, in San Diego, in La Jolla, close by where I live. That is because of John Salk, but nobody knows who was John Salk, the guy that developed the polio vaccine with the attenuated virus and mm. it almost disappeared from the world. So that, that's those exactly guys, it. he got the Nobel Prize, I get, I think. So, but it's it's forgotten in a generation, isn't it? Because yeah. the, like it, it's like it's like if you think about our children now, you know, we will forever now remember that period where coronavirus swept the entire world, where COVID nineteen had an impact. To our children, this is going to be nothing. It'll be an injection that they will get when they're younger. They'll get it in their. Yeah, arms I, I feel bad about the teenagers. Like uh, yeah. I have uh, uh, cousins that have kids with ten plus years. They are like locked down for a long time, having uh, video classes or whatever uh, virt virtual classes. Mm. And this generation lost a year. Yeah, like, they uh, socially isolated and well it's funny you should say that i actually mentioned to my wife recently i said you know what was what i think is sad because i don't think these these students will ever get this opportunity is those who would have graduated high school and sort of middle school during this period because they've missed out on that prom haven't they and and let's be honest you know your high school prom is usually the last time you see oh, in the UK you have the prom too yeah of course. oh yeah okay. Um, but you know, you that's the last time that you'll ever see eighty plus percent of those people ever again. You've spent every, almost every day with them for four or five years, and now you're never going to see them again. And they've missed that closure. They've missed that social activity to celebrate all of that hard work and you know say goodbye to your friends. And well, make... the bright side of that, uh, there's a bad thing is a social isolation that was happening already with the smartphones and social media no nobody was mm. talking like face to face everybody was like touching mm. the, their screens but now i think people well this generation even though they are losing a lot in terms of social uh, connection they would be very technology driven if they yeah. want because yeah, they yeah. have to learn on the go how to do a class online how to use the whatever software that they need to use how to do like uh, uh, quizzes or tests online. So that's what the world needs right now. You're talking mm. about data science. I think if somebody doesn't know about technology, which we, we see in the old generations like uh, millennials or even like baby boomers, I think uh, the generations now, they will be very technology driven. Yeah, uh, we liking or not, it's what's happening right now, right? For sure. And it gives them the ability to, to do something that I'm very passionate about, as you know, which is working and networking globally. Um, you know, it's the world is going to seem a much smaller place for people who are, are very technology driven because, you know, whereas 10 years ago, appearing at three exhibitions on different sides of the planet, you know, within a one week period would have seemed impossible. It would have been far too expensive. You didn't need a private jet to make it happen. Now all you need is a Zoom account and a steady Internet connection. 
Yeah, um, so, some some uh, things you will still need to go, like some sports, like Formula One, for example, that I'm a fan. Yes. They have to travel all over the world to, to run, right? Now they this year they did everything in Europe, and uh, the last one is going to be in Abu Dhabi this weekend. So mm. I think some sports like NFL, soccer, the World Championship, so all of those things they have to to be in the location, but for other things like other uh, uh, things uh, like games, for example, people already play games in the internet uh, against mm. uh, somebody in Australia or New Zealand. I'm I'm in the US or in Brazil or in the UK. I can play with teams, whatever they are. So well, you say that about static sports. You know, you've got to see how much more data and technology is being utilized in the NFL, in soccer, in Formula One. Like. Wow. It's, Yes. It's a huge amount of data and technology. No, and I, I watch the F1 every weekend that they have. It's like the, 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 they can get data points from one car, from the mm -hmm. tires, the suspension, the if something happened, uh, whatever, in the, in the engine, what's going on, everything. They are tracking everything in the car. So Incredible. it's like crazy. No, I love it. Fabrizio, you're going to have to come back for another episode because um, I've, I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for being so oh, so you. honest and open. Um, for our listeners who have enjoyed this conversation, how can they find you? How can they connect with you? Well, through my LinkedIn, is Fabrizio F. Costa. Um, probably I have some alliances there, but uh, I think uh, probably one or two, but I think you can find me. And my uh, personal website is genomicenterprise.com. Perfect. I will also include those links in the description below. Fabrizio, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I, I hope that you've enjoyed your sabbatical, even if it has been a uh, definitely not a one that you planned. Crazy year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sure it wasn't the way that you imagined it. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next, my friend, because every, every touch seems to be a – another step up and something else really impressive. So uh, long you. may your success Thank continue, my friend. And I, I uh, appreciate your invitation. Thank you very much. And I hope you get better. Thank uh, you. Stay healthy in, uh, in the UK and let's see what the, the vaccination is going to uh, do with the world, uh, hopefully. Yeah, sure thing. So fingers crossed for a successful rollout and a lot of success that comes from that. Fabrizio, once again, thank you so much for your time. To our listeners who've been listening to this, whether you're listening to us on Inspire Radio or indeed on the Billionaires in Boxers Network, uh, take care of yourselves until next time. Bye-bye. This is Billionaires in Boxers, empowering one billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time.